Hello, everyone, and welcome to Side Dish, an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Now, most management consultants would tell us that one of the most challenging projects they ever get to do are the ones that involve change management. Generally, once we humans find our niche in life and a set of foods and products that we like, typically we don't want those things to change. Yet we are seeing more change in the space of consumer wants and needs than ever before. Today, I'm joined by an excellent expert panelist who'll share his insights and stories and help us develop a better appreciation for the underlying motivations of consumers in relationship to food and why they might be interested in change at this time. Our guest today is food scientist and anthropologist, Kevin Ryan, the founder and CEO of Malachite Strategy and Research. Now, Malachite Strategy and Research is a CPG-focused strategy and research consultancy agency that Kevin founded in 2019. Prior to forming Malachite Strategy and Research, Kevin was the senior global strategist for Amazon. And before that, Kevin was at General Mills for 16 years, where he was director of strategy and innovation. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks, Bruce. Glad to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about your interests that drove your career choices? And in particular, how and why a food scientist becomes an anthropologist? Wow, that's a really, that's that's a deep question. <laughs> I, I, I would guess I would say that, you know, I followed my heart when it came to food and uh, how it drove all the decisions from food science to anthropology it was really just trying to understand food and and why people eat and how they eat. That's pretty much uh, what drove it. So I, I wonder if you can tell us about how the world of anthropology intersects with the world of food innovation. Well, for a long time, it didn't, actually. There has been a lot of interest in anthropology in the food industry, but it's only been within maybe the last decade or so that uh, you've seen some headway when it comes to anthropology and all of CPG in general. But it's starting to change. Uh, you're seeing it within a number of different industries. And I mostly put it in the sense of companies have basically taken away all the low-hanging fruit. All the low-hanging fruit of of, uh, you know, we're going to add more chocolate chips to, to cookies or whatever, that, that's all gone. And you're seeing, a, a, you know, the rise of um, uh, small startups who have really captured the heart of a lot of consumers. So anthropology allows companies to dig deeper and understand what, uh, you know, what consumers want uh, in, a, in a much more nuanced way that allows you know, you know companies to be able to produce things that consumers you know have more passion for can build a stronger relationship with uh, and so you're seeing some success in fact a lot of success as, as anthropology moves through not only product development but also package development brand development advertising all of that hmm. so the approach that you know we traditionally took with innovation and developing our innovation plans is 
we'd go out into the marketplace and we'd look for a gap in the market. That would be the number one thing that we'd all do. And you just said, look, the easy innovation gains are gone. So, you know, now that we can't go out and find a gap and try and find ways to fill that gap with a new product, I think you have a very different view of how you go about the starting place for the innovation process. So if we're developing our innovation strategy, can you tell us about your view and the best way to go about how to establish that strategy? Yeah, it's interesting that you use the word gap in the in the marketplace. I would actually say that the, the best way in is to look for the gap in the consumer, uh, which is different. So there's the gap in the marketplace, which is, How might we tease apart parts of this category or parts of this channel to see how we might be able to insert a new offering here? Whereas the the approach that I take that you're seeing more and more within companies uh, is to understand what gap the consumer has when it comes to the progress they want to make. Uh, You know, if you're familiar Sometimes this is said as, you know, Clayton Christensen at, at, at Harvard mentioned it as the job the consumer has. But whatever it may be, it's the progress the consumer wants done and uh, they're hiring a product to do it. And I think that's the best that's the best approach, because what it is, is it's a way to understand the consumer's need absent the product itself which is, a, in a sense, a very radical way to think about it. Because what I mean by that is you start thinking of the consumer's need and the idea that the consumer could hire anything to do that. So you can start to see how if you really hone in on what is it that the consumer needs done, what is the progress that the consumer wants, you can say, okay, how do we develop a product that will answer that? But we can think about it as the sense of it's different than maybe what you're currently making. So it takes you outside of yourself. It takes you outside of your brand. It takes you outside of your current capabilities and helps you think bigger, which actually helps you with breakthrough innovation. So this concept of a consumer hiring a product to do a particular job for them is really interesting. But then you contrast that against this consumer that walks into the supermarket, and, and we both know that you know these days a supermarket is carrying between thirty-five thousand and forty thousand new line items or, or line items in any given day. How does the consumer actually find this new product in that really cluttered market space, and and how does a a a, a new food producer? influence that supermarket to make sure their product can be found. So what's your advice for someone to break into that really crowded space? Yeah, there's actually, there's a couple of questions that you have in there. I'll take the first one, which is, you know, if if you go into a supermarket, a consumer goes into a supermarket and they have 10, 15, 40,000 products, you know, some of these, some of these supermarkets are huge. If that's the point at which you have decided to make your play for the consumer, then you've already kind of made a mistake. The, 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 um, the battle for the heart of the consumer has to stop, start way before that, that um, the time they step into the grocery store. Um, it happens through social. It happens through you know, uh, word of mouth. It happens through all that kind of stuff. 
and it may not be for the product itself. It may be for the, what the product is doing. You know, it's the, the flavor or whatever it may be. And then it's building that up until when they get to the supermarket and they see your product, they see the name of it, they see the brand, whatever, then it kind of, you make that final connection and then they can purchase it. Because yes, if you wait until they're in there, they're going to gravitate toward the brands they know, the things they look for, the, they're going to go on to uh, the paths that they currently do. I mean, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, consumers are on autopilot when they're in the grocery store because they're overwhelmed, which is one of the reasons why a lot of consumers, I think, are enjoying smaller footprint grocery stores because they're not as overwhelming as the others. Mm-hmm. But even there, mm-hmm. you're seeing that consumers are you need to start that relationship prior to that. And again, going back to what we were talking about, you need to understand how to form that relationship. And that starts by understanding them in a deeper way. Um, you know, it's not a surface level uh, conversation or approach. You have to get in a little bit deeper. Um, and that starts before, and that starts with really understanding. So, so can we talk a little more about how we actually understand, how we can come to understand that, consumer job to be done and then once we've understood it how we can start to build that relationship or awareness that we would have said under classical marketing terms with consumers before they go into the supermarket how does that all work yeah so that's a good question um well it you know the old classic line you know whether or not you quote henry ford or steve jobs or whatever consumers don't know what they want you know and all that mm. The problem, the thing is, is I completely agree with that. Consumers have no idea what they want typically, but they do or are able to voice the problem they have or the progress they want. They don't know how to solve it, but they know the progress that they want. And you see this because consumers are maybe hacking their way towards something that they want. I'll give you an example of this is the idea is that if you go and you you observe consumers in their home. Uh, non-COVID times, of course, Uh, you go in and observe consumers in their home or you talk to them, you will see that they they have, you know, issues with what they're doing. The the sauce is too uh, runny. The, the, um, you know, the pasta that they're making is too messy to make. It doesn't last in the fridge long enough, all that kind of stuff. Do they have solutions? Maybe. Maybe they're they're hacking their way to a solution already. But yeah. that shows you a, a space that's available that you could insert yourself in a product to be able to improve their life, to improve the product, to get to that progress they want. It takes effort, though. It takes time to really observe, to talk to a consumer, not about your brand, not about your product, but to actually listen to them comprehensively about how their lives are, how their cooking yeah. is, what do they want done? And then once you understand that, then you can actually put together what are the jobs they need and then focus on which jobs you want your brand to do, which makes sense for your brand to do or in your products um, then can come out of that. Right. So, so in that observational process, you sometimes see that consumers don't even realize they're adapting to something that's not really working for them. And and it, to capture that is really, really interesting and really critical because suddenly you've opened up a door to something, an un, un, unexpressed problem that even they didn't realize they were solving for. They've just found a hack to get around it. Do you see that often? 
Um, yeah, you do. It, 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 it depends on the category, of course, but, uh, but yes, you do. I mean, there's a lot of examples of this, you know, I mean, especially at the early stages of, of, of a category, a lot of snack foods, you know, when they were first developed, say snack bars and things like that. A lot of the, the, the innovations that happened of snack food happened from observing uh, what some people call super consumers, people who are really into a particular topic. So, for example, like sports enthusiasts, you know, they're like the, the greatest example of convenience need when it comes to snacking. Right. You're you're running a marathon and you need to eat a snack bar. How do you do that? Well, some of them turned over to um, to eating goo, as they call it. Right. It's this gel that you force <laughs> into your mouth. Right. But it shows you like a, a, an extreme example. And at the beginning of that, you had marathoners who were developing their own goo or developing their own version of snack bars in order to get nutrition in. That's an example, you know, but you do see it. Now, in less extreme examples, yes, within uh, these super consumer type of, of situations, people who are heavy users of a particular category, you oftentimes will see them doing something, maybe to your point, um, completely oblivious that it's something that they're doing. They just, this is a great way for me to get what I need done, but they didn't know that a product could be made to do the same situation. So. So look, perhaps one way for us to get even a much deeper appreciation for how anthropology can help us better understand these consumer motivations um, and how that's influencing trends is to maybe to use a real example. And, and let's look at, say, plant-based alternatives to meat. It, it seems that these days the opportunities in plant-based meat alternatives are much greater for the manufacturers than, than regular meat. Um, so how are consumers' attitudes and behaviours and beliefs changing, or is this some indication of something else again? I mean, I think there's definitely attitudinal changes, but I think it's it's a combination of things. You, you, you know, we've, we've had vegetarian, vegan, all those offerings for years. I mean, you know, you, you either grew up with seen tofu or tofurkey or all of those other options that have been out there for years. What's changed, I think, is that um, both manufacturers and culture have gotten closer together on finding a solution. So just like we were talking before, I think manufacturers, brands have actually understood consumers a little bit better and, and, and met them a little closer to the progress that they need done, so to speak. Right. So uh, they may, you know, there's a, and the thing is, is that with plant-based, just like a lot of things with culture, it's, it's, it's not as simple as it may seem. Right. So there's a lot of pushes mm. and pulls within that right. um, ecosystem. So on the, on one side, you have ethical, environmental and health issues. Right. So you have people who want to eat a less meat diet. And I say less meat, not not no meat typically, but a less meat for ethical reasons, environmental reasons and health reasons. But what's stopping them from doing that is a number of different factors. So there's your push pull type of thing. Right. So on the other side of that, you've got social pressure, um, you know, to, to, to eat one way or the other taste. Right. Some of these, uh, especially the old-fashioned uh, non-meat alternatives, didn't taste that great, right? Uh, you've got cost mm, yeah. that are very expensive. You've got convenience. Sometimes making them was difficult. So 
this idea of uh, the things that are pushing and pulling, you have to understand that. And I would say that manufacturers that have done the best so far are the ones that understand and are able to answer both sides of the push and the pull. They're able to answer both the ethical, environmental and health aspects on one side, but also answer the social pressure, the taste, the cost and the convenience on the other side. And that's the secret is finding the balance between them. And um, so the biggest groups you're thinking of, the impossibles, the beyonds, and all the other ones that are doing that now are the ones that are getting closer to finding that real balance that no one has really found in the past. Yeah. And, and you would, I think we would both agree that there is still more, more work to be done in this, this space. I mean, there's still, there's still a gap in terms of taste and arguably there's still an educational gap because if consumers are choosing these plant-based alternatives because of environmental or health reasons, not all of the plant-based alternatives are significantly different in terms of those elements, which raises almost a hidden element of the push-pull, which is the education of consumers how do how can we leverage this the concept of of the anthropological approach to this to help us understand how better to educate consumers in this space? Well, I mean, I would actually be controversial and say I don't know if it's an education of consumers. And what I mean by that is consumers oftentimes don't come to manufacturers for education. They come to manufacturers for validation. Mm-hmm of what they may be getting from someone else. Right. So I think manufacturers have to, and I think many of them are seeing this, that they're they're basically reflecting many of the views that you're seeing from, from the mm. population. Uh, so you're seeing them talk about ethical environment and they're, and they're improving on it. They're, they're constantly improving on it. So every brand is starting to come out and say, here's how we're going to be more healthy, even though we're plant-based and we're getting pushed that uh, push uh, from, 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 you know, uh, groups that say you're not really healthy. You're very processed. Well, okay, we're going to make it less processed. So they're, they're constantly trying to break down those walls of each of those. And I think that's what you're going to see. Wow. You're going to see another generation of plant-based come. And I would say, and I think this goes back to our previous conversation, going outside of yourself, uh, these pushes and pulls are not just for plant-based. You're going to see meat-based come in here and do this. You're starting to see meat that is regeneratively agriculturally raised. So it raises, it takes, Mm -hmm. some of them are more carbon neutral or carbon negative than plant-based, right? So that'll be really interesting Mm -hmm. because again, it doesn't go toward that's the job, right? The job is what you're answering. You could answer it with meat or with plant. And that's what's really going to be interesting as you're going forward. And that starts to address some of the concerns that we might have with the environmental impact of you know, societies that are starting to get more affluent. The statistics would say as, as a particular society becomes more affluent, they eat more meat. And it does raise the question of how we can work with a society of that nature to understand the ramifications of that change. How does anthropology start to play out in that space in terms of, you know, moving consumers to reconsider what they've always done once they start to become more affluent? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And that's a great anthropology point too, because that is seen throughout societies is that when you do become 
more affluent, you go for more meat. It's about understanding what's really driving that. You know, again, it's going behind that and seeing is it's, it's a show of, of status. It's a show of what our society and our culture means when we eat more meat. It shows that we're being, I think a good example of this, I always go back to it's the Tesla model, right? So when Tesla came, when, when Elon Musk, I think, you know, developed Tesla, I think a great example of this is he had to go against a stigma that electric cars at the time were basically golf carts, <laughs> right? So that's the only electric car that most people had in their mind was a golf cart. So what did he do? He went the complete opposite direction and created the ultimate sports car, right? Right. So he went the opposite way. He put a positive, extremely positive, very um, uh, aggressive almost, you know, uh, uh, spin on the idea of an electric car took it to an extreme and now he's backing into mainstream. Right. Which I think is very interesting, right? He's backing it into mainstream. What plant-based will need to do probably, and a lot of those will need to do if we want to get away from the meat aspect of it, is we need to take plant-based to an extreme, which I think actually impossible. And the other ones have started to do. They've started to get a real mm. buzz around it. Take it to extreme, take it to high-end restaurants is what impossible and beyond had done. And then bring it down into mainstream so that there is a positive aura around it. And that can actually back you into getting you away from the idea that it um, may be too inexpensive or too cheap or it may speak negatively about you. And it, it can take away some of that sense of uh, affluent is only meaning meat. Right. So if we go up a couple of levels and look at a more holistic global problem with respect to food, and, and that's food insecurity. The projections are that with the increasing population on the planet, food insecurity or food lack of food security, to put it a different way, looks to become a much bigger issue going forward. And one option of, that we have is to find ways to reduce or eliminate all the food waste. Now, it's been estimated that in excess of, of a third of all the food that's produced at the farm level is wasted by the time it gets to the consumer. So that would clearly help us address part of the insecurity problem. What consumer habits, beliefs, or attitudes do we need to address to help us address this problem of food waste? Uh, so how can we, we approach this so that it enables us to, uh, to attack it in a much more um, a sensible way? I mean, I think, again, I think anthropology shows that, you know, uh, we can't um, expect consumers or at least most consumers to tackle this um, as a as a big topic because it's too overwhelming for most. Right. The typical way that yeah. we would approach any environmental message, at least back in the 90s and all that stuff, even the two, early 2000s was the ice caps are melting buy this product and we're going to somehow deal with the ice caps makes yeah. no sense to a consumer because they'd have to go and do the research and only your very, what I would call dark green environmentalist had any connection to that. Right. So what you're starting to see is you're starting to see a much more baby step approach, which I think is the right way to do it to show that, uh, how we might be able to approach something like food waste and putting maybe some metrics against it to show if you do this, 
we're going to do this and then it's going to cause this. It's, so it's very much laying it out in kindergarten like knowledge, right? Yes. Of how we're going to tackle this. And we're going to tackle something close versus tackle something far away. Right. So we're going to tackle the idea that your local, you know, dump or whatever was going to get a pound of food waste from your kitchen, right? Right. We're going to eliminate a pound of food waste by you buying this, and it's going to be one less pound in the dump. That makes sense. That at least that's a logic that most consumers that aren't deep environmentalists. And to be honest, the way we're going to tackle this is not going after the deep environmentalists, but by going after the mainstream that need be, right. uh, you know, their, their, their mind is not always on the environment. It's about getting my kids to school, uh, you know, getting the bills paid, all that stuff. They need those they want to make a difference, but they know they need to make smaller, you know, they need to be able to make smaller differences that they actually can see some, you know, benefit from. Right. So part of the work that you do with uh, with uh, Malachite is projecting out to what the future might hold for food science and for food in general. Um, and you've said that anthropology helps you connect the dots and put the signposts in place in order to help people work out where the future might be for food. So can we get a better sense of where things are headed? Um, of everything that we observe, how might we sort out those things that are real signposts to the future that might take us somewhere rather than those things that are kind of false signs, you know, the fads rather than the trends, if you like, um, that might lead us astray. How would you think about that? Yeah. Again, I would go back to the idea that you have to dig deeper into what's really driving a consumer or a customer or whoever you're talking about versus looking at the bigger, bolder, faddish trends that are there. The example I typically use is, you know, I, I talk about the, the flowers versus the soil. Right. The idea that trends are flowers and uh, they're beautiful. They're uh, bright. So they're easy to look at. They're easy on the eye. Everyone, wa- everyone sees them. So you're like, look at that. Yep. The problem is, is that flowers die quickly. We all know that, right? They die quickly. And there's no sense if it's going to be an annual or a perennial. Like it's hard to tell. The only way you can tell typically uh, whether or not a flower is going to bloom again there or whether or not, you know, what's going to bloom there is to look at the soil. And the soil is understanding the environment, the consumers, the, all that. Digging deeper will allow you to get to that. Uh, if you just respond to the flowers, if you just respond to the trends in the moment, especially big companies don't have the ability to pivot fast enough to respond to those. Right. You, you'd lose your way really quick. If you went on that and said, oh, we're going to do this, by the time you got everything started, it'd be over with and be on to something else. But if you start looking at the deeper part, the soil, you actually start to understand what could be next. And that's, that's what you need to be at. Right. So don't respond as much to trends. Know the trends come from somewhere, but getting to that trend is the important part. 
So you're a little bit like the organic farmer of, uh, of forecasting, whereas the organic farmer says that they're growing soil, not crops. Well, you, yes. you're, you're making sure that soil investigated, is investigated thoroughly enough so that you understand what that soil can or cannot produce. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Yes, that's exactly what you need to do. A healthy company, a healthy brand grows in the best soil. Right. So, Kevin, you're on record as saying that the future has so much possibilities, which is a really positive uh, way of, of, of framing something. So as a food scientist and anthropologist, what advice would you give a young food scientist who is got all the future in front of them, just starting their career in the food industry and really wanting to make a difference? What advice would you give them? I think the, the future of food science is going to be really interesting because you have um, you have AI, you have automation, you have a lot of things that are going to affect food scientists that are going to allow. I mean, when I was in you know early parts of my career, we were doing development. I spent a lot of time on the bench, spent a lot of time in the pilot plant doing very basic things, which is great. You should do that. However, I think a lot of that's going to be relieved of the the food scientist. A lot of that's going to go to automation, allowing the food scientist to be looking at the consumer deeper, mm. looking at the looking at things deeper. So I would suggest that a food scientist, a young food scientist especially, really start to kind of understand where are you going to be looking from a market perspective, from a consumer perspective, from a whatever. I think that the food scientist has the you know, the, the best seat in order to be uh, multifunctional, right. so to speak, right? To be able to look across. And I think that uh, a young food scientist should have to be. You're, 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 um, you, you not only have your ability to, to produce a product, to produce it well, you need to have a broader sense of, uh, of all of these topics. And I would really, you know, keep your head at that level versus going down too deep to the science only which which starts to encapsulate the challenges of our future it's it's how you make sure that you're adapting to all of the challenges that are coming our way correct yeah there's yeah i mean and again i'll go back to it the food scientist does have one of the best seats because it's the understanding of the science the understanding of the product but where does that come from? And you're right. Finding uh, by having that best vantage point, I think, allows you to see broader, see further, and you know, keep their keep their keep their mind at that level. I think that's going to be important for the future. Excellent. Thank you, Kevin, for your time and your insights today. Once again, I learned a lot, and it was really inspirational. Thank you also to our listeners. If you're enjoying this podcast side dish. Please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or by connecting with IFT. You can find us at IFT on Twitter and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and or LinkedIn. For more on this subject that we talked about today, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in whatever subject you're interested in in the search box to gain access to a ton of other resources. Thank you also to the IFT staff for making this possible. And thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.